Welcome to the Encephalitis podcast today. I am delighted to be joined by one of the bright young things in our world of encephalitis research, Dr. Greta Wood. Greta is an academic clinical fellow in infectious diseases at the University of Liverpool and has a wide range of interests, including the socioeconomic impact of infectious diseases and multimorbidity. The latter of which, for those of you who don't know, is the occurrence of more than one disease or illness in the same person at the same time. She's also a member of the COVID-19 Clinical Neuroscience Study, which is investigating the neurological and neuropsychiatric complications of COVID-19. But today she's here to talk about a new research paper that she was the first author on, which looks at seizures and encephalitis. So welcome, Greta. Thank you for joining the Encephalitis podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, look, I'm going to dive straight in um, at the beginning. How did you become interested in infectious diseases and encephalitis? So I think it started with infectious diseases. I think I like them because they're varied, they're treatable and they can impact anyone. And I think then it went on to brain infections because really exactly the same applies. Um, And it's an understudied area. Um, And in Liverpool, we've really got the research capacity and the expertise to make progress in it. Um, So it it appealed both as a doctor and as a researcher. Well, look, we're talking just after the publication of a new and I think very important research paper. Several of us um, helped out on that paper, but it looks at acute seizure risk in patients um, with encephalitis. And its full title, and you'll have to forgive me here, audience, um, is Acute Seizure Risk in Patients with Encephalitis, Development and Validation of Clinical Prediction Models from Two Independent Prospective Multicenter Cohorts. So all sounds terribly complicated. Um, Tell us about what the aim of the study was. Yeah, so, well, first of all, I do want to say thank you because you you indicated in the question, but a lot of people have contributed to this, um, you know, from the patients involved in the studies, lots of researchers, and then the Encephalitis Society, you know, who continues to be involved in many of the projects that we do. Um, so thank you. Um, but to your question, um, so the, the thinking behind this is that we know that encephalitis, despite all the research and work we've done so far, you know, a lot of people are left with a significant disability and we want to find what is the optimal treatment, not just so people survive, but so they have the best recovery possible. You know, how do you protect the brain during this insult? Um, And there are some things we know and there are some things that we are learning. And so the things we know is that it's very important to try and find and treat the cause of the inflammation. You may well need to also treat the inflammation itself. We've got lots of studies going on in that area, but you also need to treat the knock-on effects of the inflammation. And seizures is one of those. Uh, And I think it's a very important one because it's common. Most people will probably have a seizure at some point. It's associated with a worse outcome and we do have treatments available. And so it might be that people that have really bad encephalitis have lots of seizures, but there's also lots of ways that seizures might cause further inflammation and further damage to the brain by starving it of oxygen or causing imbalances in chemicals. And so we really wanted to start answering the question of how do you best treat seizures and encephalitis? And I think the first step of any you know, question about treatment is about risk. And so we aimed to develop a risk score for seizures and encephalitis that you can apply at the front door when someone is admitted to hospital. 
And how did you identify the patients that were involved in, in the study? And what, what did they have to do as well as part of the study? So for this particular study, we looked back at two previous um, studies that had already been completed and reanalyzed that data, really focusing in on seizures. So the first one was the UK Health Protection Agency study of encephalitis, and then the second one was in KEF UK. So these are both observational studies, which means they don't need to change the treatment of the patients that are involved in them, but you do need to do a much more detailed data collection to enable you to do these kind of analysis that are much more informative than what you could get from, say, the clinical notes alone. Um, and so patients were identified in around 30 hospitals across the UK, invited to participate and sort of share a, a bit more information about themselves so that we can do a bit more uh, detailed study uh, of the causes of their encephalitis and in this case, the seizures within their illness. So when I started this, I read out this very long and, and uh, what seems at face value complicated title of, of our paper. Um, but what were the main findings and the conclusions of the paper? So the big thing is that seizures and encephalitis are predictable. And so we developed a scoring system that can be applied when someone comes in the front door on admission and is pretty good at predicting their risk of having a seizure during that illness in hospital. And so on the front door, when they first come in with just their age, whether or not they've got a fever and their level of consciousness, you can get a pretty good idea of their risk of having a seizure. And then once you know the etiology, you can use, you know, the cause of the encephalitis, you can use that to adjust the score. And so that was really you know, important to us that actually you don't need much. And these are things that are readily available. You know, you don't have to do extra tests to find out these things. Um, and so, we developed it in one study, or one you know group of patients, then we checked it in another and it worked in both. So we're pretty sure that it works, but we probably do need to check it uh, in a different cohort. And we're working at the minute to try and find collaborators outside the UK that might be interested to check this in their own cohorts so that we can be really confident that it works and adjust it if we need to, before we really say, actually, this is something you can apply to a patient in front of you. And then I guess, of course, we're going to have to think about how we get people to use this, right? When mm. they see those patients, that will be our mm. next our next battle. Um, but how do you think it's going to, you know, taking it back to the kind of so what question, how do you think it's actually going to help impact the future care of patients who develop seizures as, uh, as a result of encephalitis? Yeah, so I think it's a really important question and we always have to have it in the front of our mind whenever we're doing any research is actually what is the point so what how can you apply this and how can it make a difference to to real patients with encephalitis which is something you're always <laughs> trying to bring to the forefront when we're doing studies together um so i think there's a couple things there's the clinical aspect and then there's the research aspect so i think the clinical aspect is if we check this and if it works it can be very helpful for decision making because a lot of clinical decision making is about risk you know benefits and risk and actually if you've got a patient in front of you they've just been admitted or recently admitted they've got encephalitis you can put the details in this score and you know they've got an 80 percent chance of having a seizure while they're in hospital that's really important you know a lot of um seizures and encephalitis can be subtle some you might not even be able to notice even if you're looking for it and so if you've got that clinical suspicion and you've got that index of suspicion, that's already really helpful. And you can share that with the team. That's something that everyone looking after that patient can understand. And so you can be looking for seizures, knowing that that's that patient's risk. 
you then might decide to make um you know doing additional tests or monitoring you know actually there's an 80 percent risk <laughs> um do i want to do an extra test to look for seizures do i want to, them to be in a place where they can have additional monitoring or do i want them to be in a setting where they had very severe seizures you know status epilepticus seizures that we can't struggling to get on top of do i want them to be treated in a place where we've got itu or where we're able to easily escalate their care or treat them well if they're getting these severe complications of encephalitis. So I think the clinical side, with what we know at the moment, it's really to guide decision-making. Then I think going on, and this would be something that would need to be worked on, you know, going forward in future studies, is actually, can we do studies looking at what the optimal treatment is? And some people might want to do studies looking at whether we can use preventative medications for seizures. You know, actually, if patients are very high risk of seizures, 60, 70, 80%, which many patients with encephalitis will be, would a medication to prevent seizures help them? You know, actually, should you start giving them an anti-seizure medication? Uh, and, and the real answer is that we don't know. You know, lots of people could suppose, they could tell you, I think yes, because of this. I think no, because of that. But really, the best quality of evidence is to check it if you think you can justify it. But really, those sort of studies need to be supported by a risk score. So we can use it in research in that way. And, and just um, a quick uh, question. Did, did the study look at seizures in uh, both infectious uh, and autoimmune patients? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it's a really important question because the uh, seizures behave differently depending on the cause of encephalitis. And exactly for, you know, for that reason, once the cause of encephalitis is known, that can be incorporated into the score. Okay. Well, look, I'm going to put you on the spot now, uh, really. As you know, many of my team here filled lots of questions about seizures post-encephalitis. Um, mm. And as you have already alluded to, you know, it's a source of anxiety, um, as you can imagine, for people who then find not only have they uh, experienced a life-threatening illness, but they then have got complications uh, pro probably for the rest of their life in many cases. Uh, so we get lots of questions. So the team have given me some questions um, that are common to what we hear on our support line. Um, and we're just going to throw some at you to see, uh, to see uh, you know, what the answers are, if there are answers to some of them. Um, and the first one um, was from a woman. She said, I've been left with seizures after encephalitis. I want to start a family and have children. Where can I ask about advice on this? Yeah. So that's a really important question. And it's a very exciting time in someone's life and you want to be able to be confident you've got the right information. So I think if they've got a way of putting that question to their neurologist, I think they'd be very well placed to answer questions about anti-seizure medication. If they don't quite have that contact, the GP is a really good first port of call. You know, it won't be the first time they've faced these kind of questions. I'd like to become pregnant, but I have these different problems with my health. Yeah. Or you know, what can I do? Um, and Sorry, so that was that was my Apple Watch because we said life threatening illness, and so Siri <laughs> jumped in to help me. Sorry. Are you all right? I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yes, so GPs actually are probably a good first port of call if you need to kind of ask that question. They will be able to help with lots of general advice. And then if they need support or think you need to support to ask more specific or specialist questions, say if medication might need to be changed or adjusted, then they can get 
you know, put a referral in potentially to a neurologist or your neurologist to get some advice on that. But, you know, as the question sort of suggests, it's really important to plan if you can um, to, you know, for you and, you know, future health. Yeah. Well, the second one um, surprised me a little bit, this second question, um, and I'll explain why. But but the um, the person said, I've been on anti-seizure med- medication for the past 10 years, although I only had seizures during the acute illness. How can I ask the doctor to review them? Now, the reason I was surprised was because I was a bit I was a bit shocked that they've been on anticonvulsants for 10 years, having had seizures um, just during the acute stage. Um uh so but anyway um yes how can i ask the doctor to review them again is that is that going to the gp again maybe so i think if it sounds like they probably are now being managed by their gp so i think the gp is a good first of like port of call and it's a really important question and it's important that people do ask these questions about the medication um so GP, if you can, if neurologist, if you're in contact with the neurologist, because it is an important question. If someone's no longer having seizures, you know, do they need that medication? So, yeah, I would say GP or neurologist, depending on who you've got contact with. Yeah. And if you're listening outside of the UK as well, that's your primary care physician. So in the UK, we call that a GP. Um, and this was a really interesting question. I'm not sure how easy um, uh, it is to answer this, but what are the chances that someone may develop seizures after encephalitis? Yep. So there's a lot of variability um, and there are lots of factors that decide that. So one of them, one of the big ones is actually whether they had seizures when they were unwell initially. So if you had seizures when you were in hospital with encephalitis, the risk of having ongoing seizures is higher than if you didn't have seizures at all when you were initially unwell. Um, and people actually can develop seizures after encephalitis, you know, quite a long time after encephalitis, most within the first few years, but it can be much later. Um, and the second big thing is the cause of the encephalitis. And so some causes are much more likely to give you seizures than others um, and seizures for different amounts of time. And so those are the two main factors. Um, when they've done big studies, kind of population studies, actually studies that were done quite a long time ago, they've said it's probably between 10 and 20%. So one in 10 to two in 10. But again, it depends a lot on the person. And what, why would, Greta, why would someone develop seizures a long time after having been, uh, having had encephalitis and been very poorly? Why would they suddenly occur, you know, several years later? Yeah, so having encephalitis is a big insult to the brain often to have that amount of inflammation. Um, and it might be that it's it's caused some kind of subtle differences in the brain. Some people might have significant effects and some much more subtle um, that maybe only they notice or the family notice. Uh, and it might be that over time, for different reasons, they can compensate for those differences. But if there's a different uh, later in life, there's something else that maybe changes the balance that these problems can reveal themselves, whether that's seizures or whether there's something else, because the brain's so complex, it's influenced by so many things. And having had encephalitis probably makes that brain a little bit more vulnerable, where at a certain point of time, after some time, something can tip the balance and you can become a bit more unwell with something related to something that happened a long time ago. Right, I see. Um, One gentleman wrote in and he said, I had one seizure when I was admitted. I'm now on anti-epilepsy drugs. Will I need to be on this for life? It's another really good and interesting question. So not necessarily. 
Um, again, it depends on the cause of the encephalitis. So, for instance, there's been quite good research recently that's shown in autoimmune encephalitis, so, you know, certain immune-mediated causes, that actually, even though there are lots of seizures initially, they don't tend to persist, and those people don't tend to need to be on anti-seizure medication long term though again it's always individual and needs to be sort of decided you know alongside the doctor um but say other causes of encephalitis when it's say by an infection might be a bit higher risk of having those seizures long term um but if someone is in general you know on an anti-seizure medication but hasn't had seizures for a long time and we know that those initial seizures had a re there was a reason for them there was a cause you know someone wasn't well at the time it's always worth asking those questions as time goes on you know how long is this medication needed for thanks um another caller said i've been on anti-epilepsy drugs for three months they're not working and the um and the neurologist won't do anything um so they were looking to us what what do you think about that situation yeah, it sounds like a difficult situation, um, particularly if there's a question where you're not sure about a decision that's being made about your health. Um, I think, you know, in general, sometimes doctors are very good at making decisions and explaining the reasons for them. But actually, sometimes we're really bad at it. You know, you can, you know, sometimes people are so focused on making the right decision that actually explaining the rationale behind it can get missed. So I think first port of call for this person or anyone who's you know unsure about the reasons or the you know or the treatment decisions that are being made about their encephalitis is to ask you know to say oh do you mind explaining what is the reason for that decision you know i, I the doctor won't you're saying you won't change it can you do you mind explaining why is that <laughs> and actually it might be that they can once they've sort of explain that or shared you know the decision making that it makes sense and it's really important that it makes sense that you know why you're taking each medication you're taking um if you know you're not you've asked um and actually you're still that's not explanation hasn't been clear then try, maybe ask another person maybe the doctor didn't explain well but the specialist nurse might do so do you know ask for a couple explanations and it might be that when it's explained in a certain way it makes sense if actually it's been explained and you still you don't feel confident in that decision you know that's something you can you can actually ex express your concern you know say i'm worried because of x i think y you know actually say it explicitly because that gives someone a chance to address that concern to say actually oh that you know that's, that's a good point or you know we can explain or you know, go over that again if despite it all you know you don't feel confident in that decision that is an option to ask for second opinions you know you can go to your gp say you're not sure you'd like a second opinion if you've really you know lost confidence in why that decision's been made um so i think those are the main things is to try and ask <laughs> yeah, i think that's good advice because I, I guess you know it, it could be as simple as you've only been on this combination for three months and, and i don't feel it's long enough but they just haven't said that right yeah exactly exactly and those i could guess at the reasons in those this particular case that may well be one of them um and it's always worth asking um because you, you, you it's really important for people you know to understand for those because it's that's person's health <laughs> you know you you want to know and it's important for them so that they're getting the you know the best care so ask absolutely
Well, a final question that we get asked regularly, and I do know the answer to this one, um, but I'm going to let you spell it out, is the person that phones in or emails us and says, can I reduce or stop taking my, my anti-seizure drugs? <laughs> I'm sure you get that a lot. So the, the, the option is, you know, maybe, but please don't do it <laughs> without checking with your doctor. Um, and, and, you know, this is something that we all see with seizure medication and other medication is, it's not a good idea to reduce or stop anything without checking with your doctor and with some drugs it's worse than others but with anti-seizure medication it is particularly important so it may well be possible but please please check yeah do it yeah. under medical supervision people that's the answer to this question yeah um Look, I'm bringing the, the podcast to a close, Greta, but I've got to ask you this. Whilst I was researching this podcast, I stumbled across something which made me curious. Now, you are president of the Doctors' Mess at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. What, what is this about? Does it mean that you decide what the doctors get for their dinner in the restaurant? Or, I mean, what's, what's this all about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have retired from that particular position, but yeah. <laughs> Yes, I, I was president of the doctor's mess in the hospital. It was a, a multifaceted role. Um, so we did we did address some important issues, actually, you know, did things that mattered uh, to people, to patients, to, to doctors, but did also do things um, in the, what we call the doctor's mess, which is essentially, a, I guess it's like a break room um, where you have what feel like massive luxuries, like tea bags, an instant coffee and yes you would get some say in what went into the sort of emergency snack cupboard um for when it's been a bit of a busy night and like three ginger biscuits would really go quite a long way so yeah some say over the food um <laughs> which went probably the most appreciated aspect of any <laughs> anyone trying to help people in a hospital <laughs> well it sounds like a very important role to me when it's 3 a.m in the morning right and as you say you need three ginger nuts to get you through <laughs> yeah yeah um is there any other comment that you'd like to make before we finish up at all about anything no i don't think so but i would like to say well thank you to everyone that participated in the original studies um some of them actually it was almost 20 years ago now and we're still using it to help us now so for anyone that's been involved in in that research thank you um and to the encephalitis society as well um for supporting this study and many other studies um keeping us on track keeping everything focused around patients so thank you Oh, well, thank you. We couldn't do it without you guys. And I'm constantly saying that. And I, I think that people don't realise, you know, how much is done, you know, with these studies in your own time, you know, all of the people, the scientists that are involved with us, you know, most of the time they're doing this in their own time because you're full time jobbing clinicians and, you know, having the capacity and space and time to do academic work is is a luxury. So we're super grateful to all of you guys as well. But thank you for taking the time to join us today, Greta. Um, for anybody that's listening, if you want more information on the study that Greta and the team conducted, where can people go, Greta, to find out more information? Yeah, so have a look online. Um, a quick Google can bring up the original paper if you're wanting to kind of get into the nitty gritty of it. Uh, but we're also going to put a kind of summary um, in the Encephalitis Society newsletter, which is a bit more of a bite sized chunk for anyone that would like to see that. Um, so those are the main sources. Yeah, perfect. 
Well, for everybody listening at home as well, the Society remains at your service. Of course, if you need any support or information, our teams are always there for you. Go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat with any of the team online. We hope that you have enjoyed uh, yet another in this uh, encephalitis podcast stream. And as always, if you can support our life-saving and award-winning work, we would be very, very grateful. Please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate. Thank you all for listening and thank you again, Greta. Thank you. (laughs) 